This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, October 5th. I'm Julia Colfield. In today's headlines, public health monitors new Omicron subvariant, tourism budget causes headache for town council, Telluride Jewish community celebrates Yom Kippur, and a mountain weather forecast. While much of the world is back to normal, COVID-19 is still in our mix, and it's continuing to mutate. We've just continued to see really significant mutations at a really rapid pace um, for this virus, and that's what makes it so tricky. Um, And really, right now, all eyes are on this BQ1.1. That's San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin providing an update to the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners this week. It's had the most significant mutations, um, and it's still a descendant of this BA5 variant. Um, So the, the big key right now is really... Will there be a growth advantage that um, can cause more immune escape from the current vaccines? Um, But as long as it's falling in this BA5 lineage, we'll we'll continue to have protection through the most recent boosters. The new subvariant comes as we head into winter. People move inside and the virus will likely spread more easily. In different um, countries in Europe, we're starting to see quite a significant uptick in cases it looks more so behavior than a, a subvariant shift, but um, overall testing and sequencing has gone down significantly over the last year um, as uh, funding shifted, focuses shifted. So it's not 100% clear there. Most notably, the United Kingdom, which we typically tend to follow, has a slight bump upward. Um, so we're watching that closely. Still, locally, Franklin says case numbers remain at a steady, relatively low level. We've really seen uh, the wastewater COVID copies per liter um, go down quite significantly and remain in that steadier, lower level. As we've discussed time and time again, really active reported cases um, are very underrepresented, but having this surveillance data um, really gives that um, higher level confidence that we know um, a little bit better what's going on. She adds San Miguel has seen a higher uptake in the Omicron booster than the national level, but she notes numbers still remain low. Our county, we've been at about 6.5% of our population, our eligible population, so ages 12 and above, um, have gotten a booster um, since September, which is encouraging, um, especially since the national trends are about 2%. Um, But there's definitely a lot of work to do in order to get that higher level of protection going into the winter. There are two COVID vaccine clinics coming up in San Miguel County. Public Health will hold vaccine clinics for first, second, and booster shots on Tuesday, October 11th and Tuesday, October 18th at the Public Health offices in the Miramonte Building in Telluride. Vaccine clinics will run from 2 to 4 p.m. Registration is available at bit.ly slash smcvaccine. As Telluride Town Council moves through budget season, setting aside funds and estimating revenues for the 2023 fiscal year, it's considering its contract with the Telluride Tourism Board. Later this month, council will attempt to finalize its tourism goals and set aside funds to carry them out. But at this week's town council meeting, discussion was still caught up in tourism questions for the 2022 fiscal year. KOTO's Gavin McGough has a full report. 
a discussion at this week's town council meeting that intended to look towards a future contract with the Telluride Tourism Board ended up focusing not on the year ahead, but the one that is just finishing up. A point of contention arose around a budget item in the 2022 Tourism Board contract. The town discussed hiring a third party to create a plan for sustainable tourism in Telluride and designated the Tourism Board $220,000 to carry out that plan. However, the town never hired a third party to make the plan, and the sustainability plan was never made. Nevertheless, the Tourism Board has spent that $220,000. Councilmember Geneva Shawnette has questions about where all that money went and why it won't be available for the coming year. We signed a contract that said that $220,000 was supposed to go to Destination Stewardship Plan Implementation in 2022, and it didn't happen, then that money needs to get carried over to next year, just like it does with all of our capital funds. And if that got spent on something else in the organization, then that, I feel like, is a violation of our contract. Kira Skinner, the head of the tourism board, attended the meeting to answer questions. She will give a fuller presentation to town council later in the month. Skinner says that the budget discrepancy was the result of a change in plans. We thought that Bringing a third party in in 2022 would be a possibility, um, but now it looks like that will happen in 2023. So these funds were used for, you know, the destination management and um, sustainability program. Um, Really, in retrospect, we should have combined those in 2022. For council member Mian Fee, the issue is broadly one of transparency. Words like destination and stewardship and implementation and sustainability, like, there are these really overarchingly broad phrases. And if we could maybe just get a little bit more clarity as to what specifically these funds are going to, then I think it would just be a little bit easier. Council is still considering if it wants to make a destination sustainability plan. Some council members suggest Telluride could create the plan itself without a third party. Town manager Scott Robson says that a project of that size would probably be too large for town staff. You've all made really good points around specificity and uh, not overlapping budget buckets, if you will, and again, needing to dial in if and who um, will create this sustainable destination plan. I would say right now, off the cuff, we do not have the bandwidth or the expertise to do that internally. Um, even bigger municipalities than us have gone out and contracted for that work. Adrian Christie says she is comfortable with cutting some funding to the board in the future and moving money away from tourism marketing and towards other town projects. I'm fine with that number going down and us redirecting some of that $990,000 to other places to fund some of the capital projects that we talked about earlier today. I don't know what that number is, but I'm happy to reap some of the benefits of the ski company or Mountain Village push to get more people to Mountain Village. If we can ride some coattails for a little while and increase the infrastructure of this community, I'm more than happy to do that. Council member Mian Fee says that the question is ultimately how much tourism would the town of Telluride like to see and how much money will it take to make those numbers happen sustainably? Um, Because I think really what we want, you know, in this contract is to say these are our goals. These are the goals of our people. These are the goals of our citizens. These are the goals of our business. How are we going to direct the tourism board to support 
um, getting to the end result that we're all asking for. Um, and I think the best way for us to be able to do that is to get the input from everyone that um, that has a stake in this. Geneva Shanat, while agreeing, says that there is unlikely to be a clear answer to those questions. I think that's a great point. I don't think we know that until we do this study because we all disagree on what the goal is. Because many people in the community want less volume of bodies here, period. Many people want most bodies, period. Mm -hmm. So how do we find what that balance is? Kira Skinner will offer a full presentation to town council at their next meeting in three weeks' time. In the meantime, council will be making plans for distributing tourism funds in 2023. Today, Wednesday, October 5th, marks the last of the Jewish High Holy Days and the most important holiday in the Jewish faith, Yom Kippur. As part of the celebrations marking the Jewish New Year, the day is set aside for atonement, forgiveness, fasting, and prayer. This year, the Telluride Jewish community is returning to in-person celebrations for the High Holy Days for the first time since the COVID-19 pandemic. KOTO's Gavin McGough sat down with Michael Saffler, who calls himself Telluride's rabbi by default, to talk about the holiday. Before moving to Telluride 48 years ago, Saffler had been asked to perform services for the Jewish community at his alma mater, Kalamazoo College. He began the conversation by reflecting on how he came to be asked again. I thought that I was done doing that when I got to Telluride, but as soon as I got here, somebody asked me to lead services again. So uh, I guess it's a calling, for lack of a better way to describe it. How has the Telluride Jewish community changed in the entire course of your being here? Uh, the, the answer to that is funny also, because um, uh, it really hasn't. Um, people have tried to change it. Um, you know, every once in a while, somebody wants to get a little more formal in the services, and I do that to a certain extent. And then every once in a while, somebody wants to get more in, informal, so I'll do that on occasion. But... Um, for the most part, it has um, it has remained the same. Is there anything that feels unique about uh, the Jewish community in Telluride? Well, there um, there is one aspect of it which um, I like to um, conduct on services outside. It's uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's closer to nature and closer to God. Um, the high holidays, in particular, um, we uh, we go on a hike. Um, out to the waterfall in the park um, during Rosh Hashanah. And then um, tomorrow for Yom Kippur, we go for a hike about halfway up uh, Bear Creek Trail. And um, in both instances, there's a nice place to congregate and and we hold informal services and it, it seems to resonate. Um, for listeners who aren't in the know, uh, what does Yom Kippur celebrate? Oh, uh, well, uh, Yom Kippur um, literally means the Day of Atonement, um, and um, we set the tone um, for the new year by um, reviewing um, our uh, behavior in the previous 12 months and then setting the course over these 10 days for the following year. Are there any teachings from the Jewish faith and from the holiday of Yom Kippur that feel particularly resonant for you at this time or are really sticking out to you this year? 
No, it's uh, it, it for me. It's um, it's a process, and it's a yearly process. Uh, and um, I, um, I I typically don't um, overreact uh, to current events, even though um, I might bring up um, an issue or two um, just to give people a chance to sort that out in their minds. But our congregation seems to be comfortable with the uh, with the books that uh, that we use, um, and they uh, they are oriented um, toward uh, forgiveness and um, and peace, um, praying for and wishing for peace around the world. Do you have any memories or traditions from Telluride uh, practicing as a rabbi, or even from before growing up, um, uh, stand out to you from the high holidays? Yeah, well, uh, to to me, it's it's always been holy. I uh, even as a kid, I uh, felt like it was a holy period of time, and I've always fasted since I was probably I don't know eight or nine years old on Yom Kippur. Um, I used to take the uh, the hike up into Bear Creek by myself, um, and I would often um, sit um, high up um, in the basin. And um, and meditate all day. When the congregation wanted to do some services on the day of of Yom Kippur, I told them that that was probably not going to work because I do this hike. And um, they said, "Well, um, what if we came along with you?" The first year we went up into the high country, but it was it was too much, and that's how we came up with this compromise of just going up part way and. And um, and it it makes it very significant. It it sets the tone for the day, and it um, it it keeps people's focus on what the purpose is. That was Michael Saffler, the spiritual leader and practicing rabbi of the Telluride Jewish Community. The community is returning to in-person events. Information about Shabbat dinners, services, and upcoming spiritual holidays can be found at telluridejewishcommunity.com. After a summer full of art and community, this week marks the final Art Walk of the season. A local favorite event will feature new exhibits and artists at 20 local galleries, restaurants, and organizations. Just look for the Art Walk sign out front. New exhibitions will feature work from photojournalist Dan Budnick at the AHA. Budnick's work includes documenting social, political, and cultural shifts in the U.S., La Cocina will feature Sanctuaries, an exhibit by Kim Roberts. There will be a Light in the Landscape pop-up photo exhibit by Craig Spring at the Centurum Building in Mountain Village. The Telluride Arts HQ Gallery will feature work from Sudanese political cartoonist and painter Al-Migdad Al-Dakari, just to name a few. The final summer art walk will take place Thursday, October 6th from 5 to 8 p.m. Gallery guides in English and Spanish offering a self-guided tour are available at participating venues or online at telluridearts.org slash tellurideartwalk. October means scary movies, changing colors, crisp air, and autumnal festivals. This weekend, the West End is bringing an event dedicated to the changing of seasons. Nukla's 6th Annual Harvest Festival will be a celebration of all things apples. Fun for the whole family, there will be old-fashioned apple pressing, food vendors, apple pie, baked goods, hard ciders, and face painting. 
featuring music from Durango's Spaghetti Western Band. The Nuclear Harvest Festival will take place this Saturday, October 8th, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Nuclear Town Park. Colorado's Youth Advisory Council presented its policy priorities last week for the upcoming legislative session. Colorado Politics reports three of its proposed bills are moving forward. One would expand a health-based program to identify early signs of substance abuse in students. Another would create a state office of disordered eating prevention. A third proposal aims to address disciplinary practices in schools that disproportionately impact Black, Latinx, and Indigenous students. The three proposals must be approved by the Legislative Council before being considered by the General Assembly in January. Federal officials say they have a tool at their disposal to force a significant amount of water conservation on lower Colorado River users. From KUNC, Luke Runyon has more. For decades, users in California, Arizona, and Nevada haven't had to account for the amount of water lost to evaporation in reservoirs managed by the federal government. Forcing users to account for that loss would tighten current water budgets in states that have come to depend on it. John Fleck researches water policy at the University of New Mexico. It would be a huge change in the way water is administered in the lower Colorado River. Fleck says about a million acre feet of water is lost each year to evaporation and leaky infrastructure. Federal officials say they'll decide how to account for that loss by the end of 2024. I'm Luke Runyon. Among Utah's wild horses roam a special breed with a history stretching back to Spanish colonists. They've remained isolated in a mountain range near the Nevada border for hundreds of years, which helped keep their bloodline intact. As the Bureau of Land Management rounds up the herd to protect rangeland health, some say this breed shouldn't be treated like your average Mustang. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KZMU's Justin Higginbottom has the story. I'm standing outside a corral at the base of the LaSalle Mountains in southeastern Utah. Around here, you'll find plenty of horses, but the animal Naomi Wilson is showing me is special. Um, one of the first things you'd notice is the black-tipped ears and that they're a little curved. This horse is from what's known as the sulfur herd. Her and her husband have three sulfur horses now, and they've become somewhat experts. He's got the dorsal stripe down the back and the zebra stripes on the leg, and that's required for done. But another thing that the sulfurs have, although the stripes are pretty prominent, they also have the highlights, often in the tail. They do look different than the typical horse you find in the West. Their mane is bicolored, black mixed with a stylish blonde. They have one less vertebrae than normal domestic horses, so their backs are shorter. They look somehow more ancient, but their physical features, what horse experts call primitive markings, isn't the only thing that makes this breed so interesting. The sulfur herd is unique for several reasons. One, because of their bloodlines. Two, because of their primitive markings. And lastly, because of their story of how they got there, what I call the creation story. That's Wilson's husband, Stephen Schultz. He's the president of the Canyonlands Backcountry Horsemen. The still wild sulfur herd live on around 265,000 acres of land in a mountain range near the Utah and Nevada border. But as Schultz tells quite cinematically, they're a long way from home. The way they got there is an amazing story. 
The horses come from the Iberian Peninsula, where they roamed for tens of thousands of years, until the Spanish brought some to California in the 1500s as they colonized North America. It wasn't long before the Native Americans took notice of the animal. So in walks a very charismatic historic figure. His name was Wakira. I call him Utah's greatest horse thief. That chief was an important leader of Utah natives. He would later be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then have a falling out with Mormon settlers, leading to what historians call the Walker War. But before all that, he wanted horses. In 1840, Wakira enlisted his half-brother, a one-legged mountain man named Pegleg Smith, I'm not making this up, and a bunch of Ute warriors to lead a raid to steal horses from the Spanish. By then, they were under the Mexican flag in California. According to historical accounts, the native band stole around 3,000 horses. That annoyed the Spanish, and they eventually sent soldiers to recover their stock. They fought a running battle with the horse thieves that ended near the Utah-Nevada border. The Spanish recovered some of their herd, but a group of horses was left unaccounted for in the high desert. That left a group of horses scattered to the four winds right in that location. That was the historic beginning of the sulfur herd. The breed became famous for being fiercely independent and difficult to tame. There was even a cowboy poem written about them called Zebra Dunn. Just as fat and nice as you please. Shorty grabbed the lariat and he roped the zebra dunn. It turned him to the stranger and we waited for the fun. You are listening to musician R.W. Hampton's rendition of that poem. From that point on, the horses basically ran free. The reason they eluded notice and uh, roundup was because they lived in a pinion juniper choked mountain range between six and 9,000 feet. That was, of course, until the invention of the helicopter. That sound is from a 2020 roundup by the Bureau of Land Management. To protect range land, the BLM is trying to bring down the sulfur herd to around 200 horses, maybe a fifth of what their herd once was. The agency rounds up the horses and sends them to facilities where they can be adopted to the public, which is how Schultz and Wilson got their sulfur herd horses. Wilson calls them high dignity. They're very sensitive, very smart, and being high dignity means they don't like being told what to do. People really kind of push horses around and expect them to just do, and with sulfur horses that does not work. They have to feel like they have a say in the matter. They have a choice. She says she argued for years with her first sulfur before she embraced more natural horsemanship methods, and that changed the whole relationship. While range managers are trying to reduce the number of this breed here, in Europe they're trying to protect them. Genetic tests show Schultz's sulfur horse is a Garano. Only a few hundred of that breed are left, free roaming at a national park in Portugal. Maybe I'm a bit of a romantic at heart, but these horses are a genetic treasure, and here they are in Utah. I mean, in Europe, they're just about extinct, but I guess these guys didn't get the memo. Ron Robidoux has researched the sulfur herd for over 30 years. He even wrote a book on their history, Trail of the Linebacked Horse, an Odyssey. He doesn't agree with how the BLM manages the sulfur herd. These horses are a historical herd. They're not you know, just the common Mustang that were inbred with other horses that ranchers or pioneers or whoever let out or, or lost over the years. 
he'd like to see the sulfur herd area designated as a wild horse and burrow range, managed to protect the horses. But until then, he says there is a dedicated group of sulfur enthusiasts that help get the word out and arrange adoptions. I think there will be more interest as times go on in the sulfur horses and probably get, you know, more popularity with more publicity and stuff like that. And that's kind of what I've tried to do for about 30 years now. The issue of wild horse management is contentious in the West, and Schultz cautions that he's no expert on rangeland health. But he does agree with Robidoux that the sulfurs should be treated differently than your average Mustang. About the Spanish wars and a fighting on the seas With guns as big as steers and ramrods big as trees When I look at these horses, I see history running through their veins with every beat of their heart. I mean, it's a history of 20,000 years of roaming the Iberian continent, of being captured, of put on sailing ship, galleons and guns and white sails and Spanish crosses, and in a hold, a dark hold for three months while they bob at sea, given minimal food and water, only to be turned out on the green pastures of Southern California, where they must have felt like they've gone to horse heaven, to be left on the range, to be stolen by the Native Americans, to be trekked across America on the old Spanish trail, and to where they're at now after 20,000 years of freedom, 300, 400 years worth of captivity. These aren't feral horses. They are horses that were wild by nature. If you can throw a rope like you rode the zebra done, well, you're the man I've looked for since the year of one. Justin Higginbottom, Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight, with a low in the mid-30s. Thursday should be mostly sunny during the day and partly cloudy at night, with a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms. The high is near 60 degrees, with a low around 40. Friday, there's a 40% chance of showers and thunderstorms during the day, with mostly sunny skies and a high in the mid-50s. Friday night should be partly cloudy, with a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms, and a low around 40 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, October 5th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.